0: This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Well, you can open to Romans chapter 12, uh, just as we go into the introduction here. Romans chapter 12. And let's just pray for this message. There's been a lot of material in these messages and uh, there's a lot here today. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for the love you've shown us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we, uh, we love you that you would give your Son for us. And out of that, through his blood, you have purchased unto him a bride, the church. And Lord, that church is called to walk in this earth in such a way that we would demonstrate your love and your character to the world around us. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us in this calling, Lord, that you would help each of us to live in such a way that we would demonstrate you to the world around us. In the name of your glorious Son, Jesus, our Messiah, we thank you and we praise you. Amen. So we've been looking at the nature of true Christianity. It's been a long series. We're down to the last section of this. Um, uh, But believe it or not, it's going to take... Uh, a few weeks and there'll be a couple of weekends where I'm away and so that's going to stretch it out a little bit but I didn't want to put this off because there's a lot in this and you'll have a lot to think about over the next couple of weeks so I really would encourage you to take notes and uh, you know photograph the slides if you want um, you just point at me and I'll step out of the way so you don't have my ugly mug in the way um, so we are looking at now as we've moving into this last part of freedom now from the results of the bonds of sin, substantial healing in the church. The re- resurrection of the Messiah is a doctrine that has often been attacked and it gets attacked by liberal theologians and, and uh, you know, I've spoken to people who've, who've professed to be Christians and they have said to me out on the street when we're evangelizing, you don't literally believe a man rose from the grave, do you? And, uh, you know... You really shouldn't call yourself a Christian if you don't believe that. And so, uh, one teaching is that the resurrection of Jesus was just symbolic language that was used in the early church to symbolize the beginning of the church, uh, and that these kinds of things. So, but this is not true. Jesus was physically raised from the dead and He was raised from the dead so that he might purchase unto himself a bride, and that bride is called the church. And the Bible does speak of the church as the body of Christ. So let's look at Romans 12, and uh, uh, we've read verses 1 and 2 several times in the last couple of weeks, so we're going to go on from verse 3, Um, but... We'll just read verses 1 or 2 leading into that. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us Use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's the whole passage. We only have three to five there. You see some of the sections that are underlined. i got the battery. And uh, many members, one body. We being many, are one body. And so we know that Paul uh, likens this, or uses this same analogy in First Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So... Paul here takes the human body and he says your your human body has all different kinds of members in it, but those members comprise together to form one body, and so it is with Christ's body, is what he's saying. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. So, we have two distinct truths. Jesus physically rose from the dead, and out of that resurrection, the church was born at Pentecost, and the church is, since then, called the body of Christ, which is an an interesting title for the church. Now, if you think about your body, we, we know that uh, in the modern age there's a lot of emphasis placed upon external appearance and all these kinds of things, and uh, there are cosmetics companies that make millions of dollars of marketing to people uh, a look that they can have, and, and the fashion industry, all these kinds of things about how people can look. And... As the body of Christ, the church is to exhibit not ourselves, not our programs, not our name, not our banner, all these kinds of things, but we are to exhibit to the world around us the person of Jesus Christ until he returns. This is important because this gets down to an issue of the nature of Jesus, exhibiting the nature of Jesus. You'll see in families sometimes when you meet, uh, meet, you know, someone and then you meet their father, you'll say, wow, the apple didn't fall far from the tree there. You know, or you, you meet a girl and, and then you meet the mother or sisters and, and, and stuff and you see that there are these family resemblances. And, uh, you know, so in some way it's a badge of honor when, when non-Christians are trying to criticize Christians and they say, all you Christians, and fill in the blank. And there's something good about that, in a sense, when it's the right criticism, because they see within Christians that there is something that they believe, or something that they hold to, or an action that they're committed to. So, just as our bodies are the means through which we communicate to the world, and we'll, we'll get to that a little more in a moment, the church. As the body of Christ is by and large a means of communication from God to the external world. Now, let's be really clear. I'm not trying to put the church's communication on a level with the word of God. Okay? But your engagement as a member of the body of Christ in your workplace you might be the only person that your non-Christian friend has met who is a believer. And the words you speak, the actions you commit to, the way in which you behave, then becomes a communication to them about the God you love and serve. Does that make sense? We think... Thoughts, and then we convey them into the external world, uh, and that happens through our body. You know, what you're hearing is a sound wave, but it's, it's being produced by a function of, of breathing and, and, you know, voice boxes, and, you know, there's a, a, a whole construction that God has put in there that is going to create sound waves in certain patterns, and then your ear, this incredibly complex, uh, organ within your body is going to receive that sound wave and it's going to be transmitted to your brain. And so physical parts of our bodies communicate the ideas that we have. We might communicate love, not with a word, but by putting our arm around somebody who's going through distress. And it may not be a word, but it's an action that we commit to. We might uh, communicate anger over something by a way in which we look or, or we might, uh, you know, communicate all kinds of things, but it is done through our body to the external world. So our physical body is a point of communication. So think of the church, the body of Christ, very much the same way. We know that God, does not only use the church to communicate. In fact, um, Psalms makes it very clear that the the earth and the creation is a communication to the world around us, uh, and the the creation is this communication that God has given as a witness of himself and, and his creative powers the Bible is a specific revelation that God has given to us. History is part of that revelation of God as well, that he's poured out upon us, all these kinds of things. But the church comes into this as part of the communication of God to the world around us. We could cut right to the chase. In Romans, Paul declares, How shall they hear without a preacher? Preacher. And he's talking about the spreading of the gospel there. How are the unsaved going to hear except you and I take the gospel to them? So physical people are going to take the gospel and through the action of their lives be engaged with the external world around and communicate the gospel to people. So since the fall of man, there have essentially been two humanities. There are those who remain in revolution, in revolt against God. Sire, the peasants are revolting. You know, so there are those who remain in that. Their, their anger is directed at God and, and uh, they're in revolt against God and then there are those who by God's grace have turned to Him on the basis of Christ's finished work On the cross, a person does not have to join a church to be a believer, does not have to sign the Nicene Creed or a statement of faith or any such thing to be a believer. The simplicity of the gospel is about a person's sin, their violation of God, Christ's death, and that understanding that Christ died in our place. And then when the heart is humbled and broken over their sin and they call out to uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ they can be saved. All of that can happen apart from a a physical representation of a church at all, and in most cases it does. It happens when individuals communicate the message of the gospel out to unsaved people one by one sharing Jesus with them. That is where most people around the world uh, around the world are being converted. So So the church should in reality be a demonstration of these two distinctions. We should be saying, you know, that was me before, this is me now. And and as a consequence of that, our lives should be such that, that our lives are demonstrating the grace of God that has been poured out upon us. Every single generation should be able to see within the church the ev- evidence of this restoration that happens to individuals. Now we've used words here, should be able to, and uh, and that's because sometimes the evidence seems contrary to the message that is being proclaimed. And um, I think if you were to look into the parables of the kingdom, I think you'd see some clues to that, that Jesus gives indication that even within the mustard seed bush of the church that grows up larger than any other bush, and uh, so large that birds are able to nest in it. Earlier in the parable of the sower, he identified the birds as being the enemy. And so Jesus gives a clue that as the gospel goes out and the church grows, the enemy will try to nest within the church. That's that's what he's going to do. And so sometimes uh, it seems like a flock uh, has nested rather than just a, a bird or two and uh, has taken over. Uh, but every generation should be able to see a witness from the church of the, the love of God, uh, that they've been supernaturally changed and that relationships within the church have been restored. And not just, not just relationships between man and God, though that's first, isn't it? You're not in the church. Uh, and I don't mean this church, I mean the church universal, the body of Christ universal. You're not in that church if you have not a restored relationship with God gained first. So uh, then also, that a man is now at peace with himself. And I've heard... Many of you give testimonies, stand out here and share your testimonies and you have spoken about how distressed you were before coming to Christ and the peace that God brought into your life and, and that in particular for me uh, is a part of my Christian testimony that uh, that God transformed me uh, from a very anxious person uh, bringing peace within. That's also crucial. But... One of the main evidences is between brothers and sisters within the body of Christ, between people within the church. This is where the evidence to the world around us really is going to begin, that that within the church, the body of Christ experiences such a healing and there should be love evident within the body of Christ, that that love is displayed to the world around us, beginning with the people within the church. Let's have a little look at the word church. The Greek word, obviously that's a um, transliteration of the Greek because I can't read Greek and I'm presuming most of you can't as well. Ecclesia, that which is called out. Now, the idea of calling out has two parts to it. Here is, you know, Billy Bloggs, and he's called out of the world but he is also called out to. So called out from and called out to. And, you know, this is the nature of a Christian's life. The church has been called out of a lost humanity. It's been called out of its sin. But the church is called to demonstrate redeemed humanity amidst the lost world. So we're not just called out so that we can have, you know, fiesta with one another and just celebrate salvation, you know. Woo, that's awesome. But we are called out of sin and then called to a function. So it's it's not just about us. Amen? We're called out of a lost humanity but called out of this lost humanity so that before that lost humanity we can be a witness of God's redemption to this world. Now, this requires genuine biblical unity in order for this to take place. The basic thing of the body of Christ is not an organisational unity. You know, it's not about um, ticking and flicking boxes of agreement. You know, you'll agree to not have a television, and you'll agree to always wear a suit and a tie. You know, you'll agree to always wear long sleeves. You'll agree to not drink alcohol. You know, you can join any cult and do that if you want to but that's not the nature of the unity that the body of Christ is supposed to have so it's not essentially and not a, a, in the basic place this organizational or legal unity now there is no mistaking the brilliance in 1 Corinthians 12 that of that revelation that God gave Paul to share with us about the the likening of the human body to the body of Christ. Because Paul uses this amazing relationship the, the, and he says that the human body is controlled essentially by its head. Right? Um, your hands are not in direct relationship with each other but I know I can sort of reach behind, I can grab the, the microphone transmitter here and, and stuff, I can coordinate this. How's that happening? It's not the hand just doing it on its own. It's not deciding to. It's being controlled from the head down through that. And so the the hands are not in direct relationship with each other. But I heard a few of you clapping earlier. And you were able to do that because your brain was coordinating this complex action. And it's actually a very complex action. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of code that takes place in the uh, world of robotics in order to get a robot to do that. There's a lot of code in order just to see that happen. But you can do it without really thinking about it and your your ability to be able to do that is is something that God has put within. So your body is different. Your hand is not your head. Both hands are not your head. But your head is able to direct their function. So the reason they cooperate each of the joints, each of the fingers, is because it is under the control of a single control point, central point, and that is the head, which is Christ. Now um, Friday was a bit fresh out on the posty round and uh, you know, I got to the end of the round riding back to the, the office and my hands weren't doing what my head was trying to tell them to do. I, I was having trouble getting the uh, the waterproof clothes off and, of course, at that point your your body's telling you you need to go to the bathroom and you need to go quickly and uh, you've got all these layers on uh, and stuff and my body just wasn't, my hands just weren't working properly because of the cold. It's a frustrating thing. That's a that's a frustrating thing. I've had that uh, a few times in life, uh, such cold. But real unity is much more than just an organisational unity. You see, the the body of Christ. It's much more than just um, all agreeing to a creed, as such. Real unity is each part of the body under the function of the head. That's that's what it is. And that head is Christ. Let's keep emphasizing that. That head is Christ and his word. The unity of the church within the local church is about being under that head's control, being under Christ's control. If we take Jesus out of that picture there and we put a man in, uh, we're headed for devastation. At that point. So real unity is about Christ being the head of the church. And you and I functioning under his leadership. If I as an individual or if groups of Christians are not under the leadership of Christ, then the church will be functioning in such a way that it will not bring glory to God. Now, if you have been involved in a heavy shepherding movement, you know about that. You, you know that where you get that pyramid structure uh, that invariably it leads to uh, a dysfunction of the church at some point. The whole thing becomes spastic, to use the old word. Very politically incorrect these days. You <laughs> can't say spastic, you know. But... It is still a medical term. Spasticity is a medical term whereby the signal between the brain and the hands or brain and parts of the body is not working and so the body begins to display this irregular function. And uh, and so it is still a term that, that exists, but but it's, you know, you just can't say that these days. We don't want a spastic church. We don't want the body of Christ being spastic. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about a local church, whether we're talking about a Christian school, whether we're talking about a mission organisation or outreach, it doesn't matter. As individuals fail to be under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, under the headship of Christ that local church, that mission organisation, that Christian school will begin to experience this spasticity. And um, if you remember way back in one of our early lessons in this series, we talked about um, uh, two chairs. If you, re- you remember that, we, we had two chairs and we said that believers are people who have been in the chair of the world over here and, and through salvation have been uprooted from that chair and they're called to live in this chair over here, uh, but every now and then they're living and and proclaiming their Christianity. But sometimes they still sit in that chair. Sometimes they still behave in that way, and and uh, and they go back to those behaviours of the old life. And and we talked about that process of sanctification that God is taking us from this point when we get saved, and He's maturing us and developing us along the way. So there is an exhibition of Christ in, to be within the church to the world around us and that's what the result of our Christian life should be. That you and I as believers are demonstrating Jesus to the world around us. Now, unity is not merely an organizational Idea or some sort of abstract idea. Unity is not going to be perfect in this life. We, you know, we're not talking about conformity to singular ideas except in essentials. But we're talking about you and I being unified to bring glory to Christ as believers. And this is very important for us because on the basis of the finished work of Jesus, there should be substantially healed relationships in the world and, and that should start with believers. That, that should start there. That believers should be experiencing these, this healing in their lives that works outward into the world and starts with the church, that the church is that light shining to the world. Now, this brings us to a couple of practical considerations, so let's have a look at these. One is how believers live should correspond with what the Bible teaches. How believers live should correspond with what the Bible teaches. Without this, the reality of conversion and that new life in Christ has not settled in to the believer's life. Without this, we're simply a church in name and not a church in reality. We're not truly the body of Christ. Regarding purity, for example... I think that most believers will will probably have struggled and maybe do struggle with purity uh in their lives whether it is purity of thought uh in their lives whether it is uh, you know struggles with with things that they may have been strongly addicted to before they became a believer and that when they become a believer they may still struggle with these kinds of things sometimes we fail When you sin, you have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we walk in victory. But we are in a battle. That battle is for truth. You and I are likened to being soldiers in the army of God and Paul talks about putting on that armour and that battle is essentially for truth and you're seeing that now. Come into the secular world. If you if you keep up with um, the social uh, movements now, you can see that the conservative think tanks and and stuff they're saying this is about a battle for truth, and they're just talking about secular and humanistic reasoning uh, and what forms truth, what underpins truth in society, such as the idea that there are men and women. You're born one way or the other, and you can't just decide to be something else. You know, and if you do decide to be something else, that that the issue is not your body; the issue is your mind. You have wrong thinking, and so this is a battle for truth. Even the world is recognizing this now. The American, uh, I think it's the American uh, Society of Psychologists or American Psychological Society or something like that. They made a declaration uh, that. The idea of transgendering uh, is a, uh, a psychological problem, not a physical problem. It's not that you're born in the wrong body. It's that you're disagreeing with what your body tells you. you know So sound doctrine is an important thing because this is about truth. So sound doctrine is an important thing. However, although sound doctrine enables holy living, It does not ensure holy living. Look, there's a lot of dispute among believers about drinking. Um, You know, I don't drink. I haven't drunk since before I became a believer, and when I became a believer, just before, like weeks before I became a believer. When I became a believer, my social crowd changed, and, and so it was an easy thing to continue with not drinking, and for a long time I really believed that, uh, drinking was a very unbiblical thing. But I'll tell you what is unbiblical. Drunkenness is something the Bible warns against. That's an unbiblical thing. Now for a person like me, with, uh, with no off switch with drinking, drinking's probably not a good idea. Because I will go from zero to drunk. And, uh, and just right, bypass all the stops in between. You know, that's gonna be me. So, it's a much easier thing, having drunk uh, since 1984, not going to start now. It's the wrong part of life to start drinking, you know, now. So, um, you know, you, you've heard about easy believism, for example, people who overemphasize the grace of Christ. And some might say, how can you overemphasize the grace of Christ? Well, some people will excuse their sin by saying, it's okay, I'm under grace. It's, it's not okay. Grace is not an excuse for sin. In fact, the grace of God will enable believers to live above that sin. A, a willful fleshliness is more the excuse for sin. I have a, a dear friend who who struggled for a long time with pornography and and he used to pray, God, I hate this, I hate this. And he's praying earnestly. And this is a sincere brother, praying earnestly, God, I hate this. And one day as he's praying, he felt the Holy Spirit prompt him and said, you don't hate this, you love this. That's the trouble. You're denying your real desire that you love this. You're denying it to yourself. And so he's... He realized that, that he loved it, and that's why he kept surrendering to it. And so then he started praying, God, change my heart toward this. And now he knows that that, that love of pornography is something he has to keep entirely out of his life, and, and he's walked in victory ever since that day. Praise the Lord. Sound doctrine enables holy living, but it doesn't ensure it. Sound Doctrine, for example, would tell us not to fornicate, but that does not mean a believer does not fornicate. Should they? No. Have believers fornicated before? Yes, they have. When believers reject the call to holy living, then they are neglecting the interplay between doctrine and practice. I met a Christian one time who says, ah, doctrine, man, you've got doctrine, I've got the Holy Spirit, you know. How do they know they have the Holy Spirit without a doctrine for a start? Because it is a doctrine that teaches us about, as we read from Romans and from Corinthians, about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. in in Romans about him baptizing us into the body of Christ. How do we know anything about the Holy Spirit without doctrine? And so it's a a foolish argument and there is to be an interplay between doctrine and practice. As we learn and grow, as Hebrews 4 declares for us that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide that which is flesh from that which is spirit that which is of you from that which is of god and so as, as god keeps doing that in your life as you grow as you're going from point a to glorification from when you got saved to when you go to heaven in between that time you're growing And as you grow, it is because God is giving you more revelation of his word, the process that you and I are to live by is God, help me to live by your word. Help me to live by that. Teach me from your word and help me to live accordingly. And that's the interplay between doctrine and practice. Be angry. Whoa, God, I've got that one down. Ah. But sin not. Okay, God, I I can see there's a little, there's some interaction here between doctrine and practice. And so you're giving wisdom to what that anger should be and how it should be displayed in our lives. And so this is the case with the church, that the church has this relationship between doctrine and life, between belief and action. There's to be this relationship. And, you know, doctrine is kind of like the legal side of things. It gives the whys and wherefores of things, but but and it has its practice, but it's not everything. Because, like we said before, you can have a creedal statement and you can get everyone to tick off on it, but that doesn't mean any holiness will walk out the door afterwards. Because the person who's been born again and may not understand a thing about a creed of any kind could live a holy life out of the simplicity of walking with Jesus and desiring to honour Him. You see, the church is called to demonstrate the person of God, to demonstrate His character. What kind of God do we demonstrate to the people around us? You think about that, think about that in the workplace. If people are approaching you at work with requests and you're always angry. What does that say about your Christianity and about God? Now, you and I are fallible, but we are called to exhibit the fact that God is personal. So we're not going to do this perfectly. You know, I I told you that some weeks ago I had a little bit of a blow-up at work with a guy, He, he was You know, he was behaving a bit improper and, and, uh, so I said some words that were a bit harsh and, and, uh, walked away. And so I went back to him just a few minutes later before the people who heard it because people were a little surprised by that. And, um, so I went back and I apologized, uh, to him in front of those people. And, you know, it was a little bit of a humbling experience to do that. But I thought, man, what have I just done to my testimony? Right here, I need to do at least what I can to restore this. And so I went back and apologized. We shook hands, and he apologized as well, which was interesting. And um and so uh you know yeah, it's just that kind of thing. Like this is we're talking about reality here. This is how you and I live out our relationship with Jesus in the workplace. It's not just you know that we come to church on Sunday and the the Bible's tucked under there. Well. Hello brother. It's good to see you this morning. And greet each other with a holy kiss. You know, it's, it's not just that, it's how we go from this place and how we interact and, and how the doctrines that we're learning in scripture, how that interplays in our life, how that works in our life to cause us to behave as a Christian should behave. So, the battle against false doctrine and the battle against sin is not going to end in this life, you know. Um, these These things are true. But I believe that these battles are minor compared to a living relationship with God. A real relationship with God. Now there obviously there are doctrines and there are doctrines right there are false doctrines and there are false doctrines if you start going into uh Jehovah's witnessism for example that Jesus is the first creation of God you get into mormonism Jesus and Lucifer were brothers right These are really bad false doctrines. You get into Mormonism that says that as God is you one day will be as you are, God once was. So, you know, these are bad doctrines. Really bad doctrines. Those kinds of false doctrines deny the deity of the person of Jesus Christ. And so there are false doctrines you know, Then there are things that we can dispute. Should we or should we not worship on a Sunday? Who cares? You know, if you can worship every day of the week. Who cares? And, you know, so those things, though, don't compare with the importance of this living relationship, that that dynamic relationship that you and I are called to have with God, that we would have that relationship with him. First between you and God and then between you and I, one another. So first of all is your relationship with God, my relationship with God. That must come first in your life. And then there's our relationship with one another. And so, you know, one creed says that we're to glorify God and make Him known in the world and that is, that's a wonderful statement. But this can't be just a mechanical thing. It's not just a mechanical or a legal thing. It, it's got to stem out of relationship, you know. It's, that's like the guy who, who marries his bride and he, he takes her to his friend's houses to introduce her because he's in love. It's it's not because of of anything else. It's because he's in love. He wants people to come and meet his bride. And you and I are to be like this in the world around us. We are to display Jesus to the world around us. Why? Because we love him. It's It's that simple. It comes back to this relationship to glorify God. It's got to come from this personal relationship with God. So therefore the church is to exhibit these redeemed personal relationships. It's it's a sad thing when you meet someone who's born into a, a church movement and, and you ask them, are you a Christian? And they say, oh yeah, I was, a, I was born a Christian. You know, there's, I think there's almost no sadder thing To hear out of someone's lips that they, that they believe they're a Christian because of a birthright of some kind. Uh, That's, that's wrong. God has no grandchildren. Everyone, Jesus said everyone must be born again. Born again. And so you and I are to exhibit redeemed personal relationships. This is why it's very hard for church kids uh, you know, they grow up in church and they've gone through the religious rituals and they've learned to pray in the right way and say the right words and quote the right verse and all these kinds of things. And it's all a pattern of behavior. But when they encounter Jesus, and that's what mums and dads need to pray about, when they encounter Jesus. That can happen young, happens very young for some, some kids. But for others, it's going to be when they're older. Liberal theologians remove these distinctions between the saved and the lost. They do this, I believe, essentially. The, I mean, it's doctrines of demons. Uh, but essentially it's because there's this hungering from the, from the liberal mindset To not have, not be alienated from the world. To have the world love them. And, and, you know, honestly, go out on the street and witness for a while and you will meet some religious person who will say, I, I know this guy and he told me that I'm a Christian. You know, nothing could be a more dangerous thing to say to someone. I was told that when I was 13 because I said a sinner's prayer, uh, with someone and they patted me on the back and they said, you're a Christian. Now praise the Lord, and and um, I didn't understand anything I just did, and I was not converted until I was 18, and uh, nearly 18 and a half. So the problem with this is that this kind of thinking, when we remove these distinctions between saved and lost, and and remember, I'm not talking about distinctions this way that somehow the saved are you know a higher class of people. I'm talking about that we see the distinction of sin, that sin had kept me in my lostness and by the grace of God I've been saved and redeemed though I'm unworthy. Right? But the problem with this kind of thinking is that it often leads to worldliness in the church. I've known of churches where uh elders and and uh, deacons in the church have not even been believers um, you know what a tragedy but in keeping that distinction we must show the brotherhood of Christ You see, when we're adamant about keeping this distinction between the saved and the lost and we don't show any brotherhood of Christ, we will start to see ourselves as being above other people. The religious elite. And there's more than one or two cults in the world who have that kind of thinking. And some of them are very mainstream. When the Church recognises the differences theologically between the saved and the lost. Then neglects to show the brotherhood of Christ to one another and and, uh, neglects to show that same love for humanity to those who aren't saved. We're really set up for religious hypocrisy. The apostolic... Creed, I've bagged out creeds plenty of times, but it does say, I believe in the communion of the saints. I don't recommend creeds, to be honest. It's like a safety check, vehicle safety check that people have to do before they drive the vehicle out at work and they get the safety check and and they go over and they go tick, 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 put it back in. They haven't really checked if anything is safe uh, to use that vehicle. We can, we can do the same thing with creeds. We can say, I believe, I believe, I believe, and then walk out the door and behave like devils. But that is a beautiful statement. I believe in the communion of the saints. We state this, uh, you know, as being something of desire. It's not to be merely a theological phrase but the communion of the saints, that you and I are bonded together because we have a commonness in Christ Jesus. There are all kinds of differences about us, differences of race and and colour and national background and educational levels and all different kinds of things, but we are one in Christ. And at that point, we should be sharing in this communion this mystical union of the saints, the body of Christ. Well, I'm going to close with these couple of ideas here. What then should the church consciously be? I I want you to think about this for the next lesson, which will be in two weeks. And I'm emphasising the word consciously here. Some of you are feeling a little unconscious at this stage in the sermons. 47 minutes, unconsciousness is setting in. But the church consciously, the church what? Consciously should be that which encourages its members in the true Christian life, in true spirituality. It should encourage freedom in the present life from the bonds of sin, We had a lot of lessons on that. And it should encourage freedom in the present life from the results of the bonds of sin. Essentially, we're encouraging people to come to Jesus and be set free from the bonds of sin. And then, after that, we're encouraging people in this life to be free from the results of those bonds. Do you remember the illustration I used? If you kick a dog, it walks funny. Right? Right? Anyone remember that? that? If you kick a dog, it walks funny. And you know, I experience a lot of dogs out on the posty round. And uh, you know, there are dogs that you don't trust. And there are, there are ones that come barking at you, and you know, you can just walk straight in and and uh, and stuff. But there are ones they come up and their tails down, and they walk sideways at you like this. <laughs> and it's because someone's kicked them a few times, and they're watching you because they're seeing what you do with your leg i got this funny dog on my round. This is totally separate to all of this. Um, his, his name is uh, Bruno, and uh, he's a Japanese Aikido, or Aikido, or whatever they call him. And he comes up to the gate and chews on the gate while I'm there, and he doesn't bark at all, and, and if I reach near the fence, he'll reach over and try to bite me. I can park the bike and walk straight into the yard, and he just stands there and looks at me like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be on that side where I can defend the property. You know, He's hilarious. So... Um, but it, it, it's freedom now. So we have a lot of learned behaviours and we come to Jesus and then some of those things are difficult to unlearn and it's a process of sanctification. Sometimes God sets people free amazingly from addictions and all kinds of stuff, but there are issues of our personality that have to be worked out. There are issues of thinking that have to be worked out and God does that over a process of time and that is that freedom in the present life from the results of the bonds of sin. So, this is a, an exciting part, substantial healing in the church. There's been a lot of trouble in Christianity, um, in, down through its history, but the church has been, by and large, a glorious thing, the true church. A glorious thing. And, uh, if you look into, do some studies into church history, you'll find some amazing testimonies of churches that have absolutely lived a glorious testimony in their communities for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Our Father, we thank you this morning and we praise you for your love. We praise you for that love that you've shown us through Jesus. We praise you that that love is revealed to us in the Gospel. And we praise you, Lord, that in the gospel we're confronted with our sin in contrast to your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, for your saving power that at the cross Jesus was in himself able to deal with all man's sin that anyone who humbles themselves before you will be saved. So we praise you for this, Lord, and we thank you. Help us now, Father, as we consider these magnificent thoughts about the gospel. Help us to live in such a way that we would, day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year, should you tarry, maintain a witness of you to the world around us, to live out our Christian faith among those we work with, live with, and encounter every day. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.